0: Back there in the Reach Beyond uh, building, and I know the, the folk at Reach Beyond, some of whom are here tonight, have been really kind to us, but, but so too of you, you guys as a, as a church. Um, we wouldn't have a church office, we wouldn't have a home Monday to Friday, I think, were it not for the kindness of this congregation. So thank you very much for that, and we uh, appreciate uh, the support, the, the like-mindedness that we share with this congregation, and um, Shabu has been a great uh, encouragement to me over the last little bit getting to know him and working with him and things like the gospel coalition so um, thank you very much it's always a a pleasure to come out here and and open up God's word uh, for you so let's let's do that now let me uh, let me just add my own prayer quickly to um, Shabu's prayer can I pray for me and for us father as we look at your word now please um, teach us correct us and rebuke us if need be train us in righteousness we pray that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Um, and pray that the the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts might be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, I wonder if you've ever considered uh, how the presence or absence of somebody has the impact to or has the ability rather to impact both our disposition and our actions. The absence of a deceased husband leaves a widow grief-stricken and afraid as she faces yet another night alone. The presence of a dear friend by a hospital bed brings comfort amidst uncertainty. (coughs) For those of you who like to sing in the shower or into your hairbrush, into the bathroom mirror, the absence of an actual crowd brings, doesn't it, freedom and security to hit those kind of high notes. Uh, For our AFL Stars, the, uh, as, as the new finals season or series approaches, the presence of thousands of screaming fans can lift them to achieve incredible feats. While the absence of a teacher from a classroom of teenage students can lead them to, mis- to, to implement the most mischievous plans. For me and my friends, it was letting off the fire extinguisher in the science room or, or throwing scondo into the mozzie zapper in the home economics room perhaps of more significance the presence of a crowd of people singing with hands raised and eyes closed can leave a person persuaded that god must be present while a lack of people in a silent dark room can lead a guy who sits in front of his computer to act as though god must be absent for the christian our great hope is that what was lost at the fall in the fall will be one day fully and finally Restored, That our sin, which separates us from God and removes us from his presence, will be dealt with or has been dealt with so completely in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus that we will come to live again in the presence of God, that we will see him face to face. But, and this is a very big but, but while we wait for this great hope to be fully and finally realized, life in this fallen world may make us wonder sometimes if God is present at all. The death of a loved one, the pain of an unfaithful husband or wife, the never-ending stress of an overbearing boss, the monotonous tasks of an ordinary job, the disappointment of exam results, the anxiety of parenting a wayward child, In a world of broken dreams and shattered relationships, a world that can feel foreign and strange and lonely, there may well be times when we wonder, where is God? Is he present? Does he care? And since he seems often so absent, is there really any point to being faithful? Is he with me or against me? Well, friends, I want us to keep those questions in mind as we look at Genesis 39 together and consider what's going on during what is, I think, arguably one of the darkest periods in Joseph's entire life. Most of us will be familiar with the story of Joseph, I think, from from Sunday school stories or Broadway musical. I mean, the, the life of, of Joseph and his robe of many colors has, has captivated the hearts and minds of both young and old for generations. For those not familiar with the Bible, the story of Joseph is found at the very end of the very first book in the Bible. The Bible begins with God creating a good world and creating people who are something like himself, people in his own image and likeness, and he places them in that good world to care for it and to subdue it and to rule over it, but always under his authority. Now, what happens is that Adam and Eve, our first parents, rebel against God. They reject God. They disobey his commands. And precisely because God is good and loving and cares about us, he takes their sin seriously. He judges them and sentences them to eternal death outside of his loving presence. And yet, because God is also loving and merciful and gracious... He sets about rescuing a people for himself and reestablishing the paradise that existed in the beginning. And so later on in Genesis, in Genesis 12, God chooses a man, Abram, and he promises him descendants and land and blessing. And he promises him that one day all the nations will be blessed through him, that salvation will come through his offspring. Now, fast forward a little bit. And Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons who will one day make up the 12 tribes of Israel. But before we get there, at the very end of Genesis, what the author does is he shifts our focus and switches our attention onto Joseph, one of the sons of Jacob. Because the story of Joseph not only shows us how God is fulfilling his promises to Abraham, but it also explains how the Israelites end up in Egypt and thus sets the stage, really, for the second book in the Bible, Exodus where the Israelites are let out from under Egyptian slavery, under the leadership of Moses. Anyway, Joseph, you'll remember if you've seen the, the musical, was the favourite son of Jacob. And Jacob's favouritism stemmed from the fact that Joseph was the eldest son of Jacob's favourite wife, Rachel. And his favouritism was shown in him receiving a special robe. Now. The musical might be right, it might have been a robe with many colours or or been richly ornamented. It was probably a a long robe that reached down to his ankles and had sleeves to his wrists. But most importantly, in the Genesis account, most importantly, it indicated that he was special and he was likely to receive the birthright of an eldest son. Now, not surprisingly, Jacob's favouritism created a hostile family environment. A couple of years ago, Narelle, my wife and I, I bought our kids a trampoline, a big round trampoline for Christmas. Now, just imagine, just imagine if we gave Annabelle and Ruby, we, Katie wasn't alive at the time, but Annabelle and Ruby, imagine if we gave them coloring books and gave Noah the trampoline. Imagine the kind of hostility, the kind of competitiveness that that would create among our children. Well, Jacob's favoritism created a hostile family environment. Joseph's brothers hated Joseph. They were jealous and bitter. But then in the midst of this hostile situation, God gives Joseph two dreams basically with the same point, that a day is coming when Joseph will rule over his brothers and family. Now, what's interesting is that these dreams do absolutely nothing. They do absolutely nothing to calm this volatile situation. In fact, if anything, they make a bad situation worse And they ultimately drive Joseph's brothers to betray him and sell him into slavery. So friends, just imagine, just imagine being Joseph. In the space of just a few days, Joseph went from being a favoured son with special responsibilities to being a rejected, heartbroken, humiliated slave. He's bound and transported down to Egypt. He's alone in a strange and foreign world. He goes from being the centre of his father's attention and affections to being just a mere number, one of hundreds, maybe thousands, who are dwarfed by these huge Egyptian monuments and surrounded by foreign gods. And then in a scene maybe similar to what you might have seen in Gladiator, the movie Gladiator, he's paraded by the Ishmaelites before prospective Egyptian buyers, wealthy prospective Egyptian buyers before finally someone, someone finally gives him a nod of approval. Though not of him as a person, but as him as a possession. And he's sold as a slave. And that's where we find Joseph in Genesis 39. He's now just a slave in Egypt. Though he's not just a slave, actually. He's a slave in the household of Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh. So this 17-year-old kid who'd been given a dream by God of ruling, was now in a foreign world, surrounded by foreign gods, serving in a house with direct links to Pharaoh, the ruler of this world, who was himself a god in this world. If you have your Bibles there, please open them up to Genesis 39. Genesis chapter 39. I'm reading from the ESV. And I'm going to read the whole chapter. This is God's word. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man and he was was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From that time, from the time rather, that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptians house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he, ha- all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge and because of him... He had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me but he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he'd left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home and she told him the same story saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were there in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did... The Lord made it succeed. Well, if you're a note taker, uh, I want to work our way through this passage really just under three simple points. (laughs) Firstly, the head of the house, verses 1 to 6, where we're told of Joseph's rise to a position of prominence in uh, in Potiphar's house. Secondly, uh, temptation and treachery in verses 7 to 20, where Joseph is tempted and framed by Potiphar's wife. And then finally, the principle of the prison, verses 21 to 23, where we see Joseph rise again to a position of prominence, only this time he's in prison, though we'll see in a moment that that too isn't without significance. So firstly, though, we're told of Joseph's rise to the head of Potiphar's house. Look there at verse 2 with me. The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. So really from the very beginning of this chapter, The author wants us to understand that God is with Joseph. And it's this fact, it's God being with Joseph that causes him to succeed and to progress. In fact, commentators point out that it's this theme of God being with Joseph that actually forms the theological heart, if you like, of this chapter. So we're told, for example, at the beginning of this chapter that the Lord was with Joseph. And then look down there at the end of the chapter, verse 23. We're told again, as he sits in prison, that the Lord was with him. So the chapter is really by this theme of God being present with Joseph. And I'll come back and, and talk a bit more about that toward the end. But for now, notice that God's presence with Joseph was so clear that other people could recognize it. Look there in verse three. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So God's presence with Joseph enables him to succeed, which in turn leads Joseph leads to to his rise, rather, in Potiphar's house. So notice, for example, in verse 2, God's presence with Joseph and his success means that he's serving in the house of Potiphar. So he's not working outdoors like a normal slave might have done, but rather he's serving indoors. He's working indoors. Then look there at verse 4. Notice in verse 4 how his success leads him to finding favor in Potiphar's sight, and he begins to attend him. So he's not just working indoors. He's now also the personal attendant of Potiphar. And then notice again in verse four that he progresses further. that He's then made overseer of Potiphar's house and put in charge of all that he has. And then verse five, notice the result. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So I mentioned a moment ago about God's promises to Abraham. Well, here we see those promises being fulfilled in the most unlikely of ways through a young humiliated in some sense slave named joseph god had said to abraham i'll bless those who bless you and so when potiphar favors joseph he becomes the recipient of god's faithfulness to his promises to abraham and then finally notice verse six the extent to which potiphar trusted joseph so he left all that he had in joseph's charge and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now, why the concern for food? I mean, is Potiphar kind of like my father-in-law who I could just never get his cups of tea right? I mean, it doesn't matter how much water I put in, how many jingles of the tea bag there is. doesn't matter how much the splash of milk, whether it's more milk or less milk, it's just never right. Is Potiphar kind of like before his time? Is he something of a food critic or a tea critic? I don't think so. If you flip over to Genesis 43, there we read that the Egyptians did not eat with Hebrews because it was an abomination to them. So it had to do with, customs, Egyptian customs and ritual purity. Notice how verse 6 really intensifies what we read in verse 4. Verse 4 tells us that Potiphar put Joseph in charge of all that he had, but verse 6 notice he's stronger. He now leaves all that he has in Joseph's charge, literally in his, under his hand or in his power. He trusts him to the point where he no longer worries about anything, he just leaves it all to Joseph. Uh, not long after I became a Christian, I was encouraged to do the the Alpha course. Some of you might have done the course. One of the things that really struck me through the Alpha course was the story I heard of, a, of an elderly man, an older guy named Mr. Gibson, whose nickname was was Gibbo. There was an event in his in gibbo 's younger years that totally transformed the, the whole course of his life. He, he worked as a as a clerk in the huge u k department store, Selfridges, uh, and he worked under Gordon Selfridge the founder of Selfridges well one day Gibbo was in the office and uh and took a phone call the person on the other end of the line asked to speak with Gordon Selfridge Selfridge was in the room and so Gibbo went to pass the phone to Gordon Selfridge and Selfridge just kind of motioned and said no no, no. tell them I'm not here and Gibbo handed him the phone and said well will you tell them when he got off the phone he was understandably upset but Gibbo said to him look if I can lie for you, I can lie to you, and I never will. And that moment on, really, from that moment on, it really transformed his entire career at Selfridges because from then on, any time they needed someone they could trust, they always went to Gibbo because they knew he could be trusted. And it's that kind of trust that Potiphar seems to have in Joseph. He's now the head of his household, and he leaves everything under his care. But as Gordon Wenham, uh, in his word, biblical commentary, notes, he says, amidst Joseph's many blessings, he suffers from one endowment too many. Look there at verse six. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Of course, the same as said earlier. If you're familiar with Genesis, of Rachel, Joseph's mother, in Genesis 29, we read or we're told that jo- uh, that Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. So I guess. Joseph's kind of like my kids, they get their looks from their mother. Um, when I asked Narelle to marry me and spoke to her father, he made it very clear that I was marrying up. But he had no, no arguments from me, of course. Um, the point here really is that Joseph's particularly attractive. He is like the Brad Pitt or George Clooney of the Bible. And his looks land him in the midst of temptation, testing and treachery. Look there at verse 7. After a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. Or again, verse 10, she spoke to Joseph day after day to lie beside her or to be with her. We can see here how Potiphar's wife is really the embodiment of the seductress from Proverbs 7, who with seductive speech and smooth talk seeks to persuade, to mislead the young man to unfaithfulness. Of course, today there are virtual seductresses splashed across billboards and movie screens and websites and ad breaks, all designed to entice and awaken desire. Not to mention the fact that there is the person at work who is as well understanding as Potiphar's wife is forward. We live in a world, don't we, where sex sells, where women are encouraged to use their sexuality to get what they want, where the media pumps out images of actresses and musicians and models dressed in sensual attire. So ladies, let me just encourage you to just be careful to not uncritically follow culture which ceaselessly targets your hearts and encourages you to seek glory and fulfillment through your bodies. Now, just to be clear, I don't think that dowdiness is next to godliness, nor do I want to communicate that purity is merely external because it's not. As one writer, Carolyn Mahaney, helpfully, I think, points out, she writes in her book, True Beauty, that any biblical discussion of modesty begins by addressing the heart, not the hemline. So so with that in mind, here's just, this is a bit of a sidetrack, but that in mind, just here's three diagnostic questions, three diagnostic questions to get you to think about and engage with your hearts. And much of what I'll say here applies, of course, to guys too. But firstly, when you buy your clothes... And when you, you dress yourself each day and look in the mirror, just ask yourself, what are you thinking about? That is, what drives you to make yourself look the way you do? In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Secondly, the Bible seems to suggest rather that women should aim for minimal external adornment and maximum internal adornment. So for example both Paul and Peter suggest that adornment shouldn't signify excessive preoccupation with external looks but rather should signify a preoccupation with godliness. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. 1 Peter 3 we read, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable, and imperishable beauty rather of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, just to be clear, I don't think that Paul or Peter are banning braids and jewelry or gold, or, or, or jewelry or gold outright any more than they are clothes. So, so notice that Peter mentions in his list there, clothes. I take for granted he's, he's not telling women to walk around naked. You'll be pleased to know. What they're warning against, I think, is the, and what they're forbidding here, is the excess and sensuality that these items signify. Notice that Paul mentions costly attire. You see, these items communicated excess in time and expense, and they were seductive. Women who dressed in the first century and adorned themselves like this were very often immoral. For those of you who are younger here, I know that advertising encourages you to do this, but honestly, why on earth would you want to look and dress like Kim Kardashian or Miley Cyrus? Narelle and I were were listening to a a talk on the Gospel Coalition that Jen Wilkin gave recently on parenting, it's a very helpful talk. Uh, But she mentioned there uh, some of the things she used to say to her daughters as they were growing up. One of the things she used to say to her daughters well, she used to say, "Look, you're not responsibility. you're not responsible, rather, for the purity of other guys. That's not on you. That's not your responsibility." But she used to also say to them, "Don't you want guys to look you in the eye when they're talking to you?" That's helpful advice, I think. Uh, maybe to the, some of the guys here, some of you might want to think more critically about your eagerness to get your guns out when the sun's out, just throwing it out there. Thirdly, uh, if you're single uh, and this obviously applies to both guys and girls. If you're single, would getting married mean the way, mean rather that you have to change the way, radically change the way you relate to people of the opposite sex? That is, do you just have a bunch of friendships that wouldn't be appropriate anymore if you were married? Then couldn't it be that there's something inappropriate, unhealthy, even perhaps sinfully unwise about the way that you're relating to the opposite sex, about the nature of some of those friendships. I could say more, but there's just three diagnostic questions to kind of think over and probe your hearts. Back to Joseph and notice verse 8, the integrity he has as he responds to Potiphar's wife. In fact, if you look there, he gives three reasons that keep him from sinning. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. In other words, I won't betray Potiphar's trust. He has put everything he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. I'm in a position of power and responsibility, and I won't exploit it or abuse it. And then finally, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Ultimately, of course, to do this would be to sin against God. You see, Joseph doesn't compartmentalize his life. He just doesn't compartmentalize his life. He has integrity. This is a Gibbo-like, if I can lie for you, I can lie to you, and I never will. There's no Bill Clinton-type ethic that says, you know, so long as he's a good president... It doesn't matter the kind of man he is behind closed doors. The Bible encourages us to see our lives as an integrated whole, to not be one person at church and a different person away from church, in the home or in the workplace. Paul says, if you want to know if a man is suitable to be an elder, he says, look at his home life. What's he thought of in terms of outsiders? Jesus says that the person that can be trusted with little is also the person that can be trusted with much. Notice, too, that Joseph understands that Even in a foreign country, away from his family and friends, his life is still lived before God. How then can I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Guys, understand this. Joseph resists temptation because he understands that what we do, even behind closed doors in dark rooms, is ultimately done in the presence of God. Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the place of the dead, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day for the darkness is as light with you. For Joseph, understanding that all of God, all of life rather, is lived before a holy God, meant that faithfulness was never—it was just never—pointless, and it helped him to remain faithful even in the midst of persistent temptation. Look there at verse eleven. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, "Lie with me." but he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. In many ways, of course, Joseph provides us with a graphic picture, an example of what we're to do when facing temptation. We're to run, flee. Listen, don't play games with boundaries. If it's the internet and it means the difference between being faithful or not, then leave the internet behind. Be wise. I mean, don't... The amount of guys I speak to that do this, don't fight for purity all day and then take your iPhone or your phone into the bedroom with you at night or, or, or the laptop in the bedroom with you at night. I mean, for goodness sake, it's kind of like metaphorically taking Potiphar's wife's hand into your bedroom and inviting her to lie with you. Friends, realize that we live in a world where Potiphar's wife is only ever a click away. And so be wise. Be diligent like the wise man in the Proverbs like Joseph is here. Of course, just as the stripping of Joseph's robe by his brothers at the beginning of the Joseph narrative indicated his removal and rejection from a position of favor and prominence, well so too here, as his cloak is stripped violently by Potiphar's wife, faithful Joseph is framed and removed from favor. And you notice all of the things that she did, subtle things to kind of indicate or or strategic things to help sort of build maximum sympathy toward her and to alienate Joseph. You notice how she she lays her robe beside her, how she calls him a Hebrew just in case anyone's forgotten that Joseph's not really one of them and to kind of bring out any racial prejudice and how she, she, she suddenly blames Potiphar. Notice that Joseph's the Hebrew whom you have brought among us as though to say that you've not done your job in protecting me. And the result is that Joseph is thrown in prison. Look there in verse 19. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, his anger was kindled and Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's servants were confined. Notice that we're not explicitly told who Potiphar's anger was kindled at. I mean, the fact that Joseph's not killed, as would have been normal, indicates that I think Potiphar at least questioned his wife's accusations, but I think the, the embarrassment, the social pressure means he has to do something. And so Joseph's thrown in prison. He, he reaches, I think, a new low in his life. Psalm 105 describes his condition like this. Joseph was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. Until what he had said come to pa- came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. In other words, God is not just working out his saving plans and purposes through Joseph. More is going on here, I think. He is, in his wisdom, at work, testing him, trying him, sanctifying Joseph. He's preparing him for the work he has in the years ahead. And though Joseph is still just a kid, he is fast becoming a spiritual giant. I noticed this a little while ago. If you you flip back or flip over rather forward to Genesis 41 verse 25. At this point, Joseph's been forgotten in prison for years. His condition really hasn't changed. He's brought out before Pharaoh to interpret his dreams. But his condition really hasn't changed. For all he knows, he could interpret the dreams and get thrown back into prison. And Joseph says to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. And then look at verse 32. The doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God. Now, think about it. Who else in the Genesis narrative receives a double dream with a single meaning? You see, even in prison, Joseph believes that God will be faithful to his word. And like the opening verses of this chapter, God's presence results in him rising again, this time to a position of prominence in prison. Look there at verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Just notice the similarities of phrases here with what we read in the opening of this chapter. For example, the Lord gives Joseph favor. He's put in charge. The one he serves pays no attention to anything, that he he doesn't have a concern. Joseph succeeds. And of course, the Lord is with him. As I pointed out at the beginning, this theme of God being with Joseph, God's presence with Joseph, really forms, I think, the theological heart of this chapter. In fact, did you notice how the author uses the personal covenant name of God to refer to, to refer to, to God? It's the Lord it's Yahweh, it's the personal covenant God who'd revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who's there with Joseph. In fact, in the Joseph narrative, this personal covenant name for God is rarely used. It's used once in chapter 38, once in chapter 49, and then apart from that, it's not found anywhere, nowhere from chapters 37 to 50, apart from here in chapter 39, Where the author uses it eight times. You see, it's as if the author is making clear to us, the readers, that when the bottom dropped out for Joseph, when it looks like his life fell apart, when his dreams and hopes appear shattered and lost, when it would have been perfectly natural for him to feel alone and afraid, when he seems stuck in a world of broken dreams and shattered relationships. God was still there. And friends, it's this theme of God being with Joseph that speaks to us, I think, when we're tempted to wonder where is God? Does he care? Is he with me or against me? But before we get ahead of ourselves, we need to realize, we need to keep in mind what Jesus says in Luke 24. Jesus says in Luke 24, He says to his disciples, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. In other words, the Old Testament, all of the Old Testament, including this passage, points forward to and is fulfilled in Jesus. So the cross is the lens through which we interpret and understand the Old Testament. You see, if we jump straight to us with this truth of God's presence with Joseph... We might start to think that God's presence with us is, is promising, this passage somehow is, is promising us that God being with us will automatically mean that everything we touch will turn to gold, that we'll get promotions in our job, that God's presence with us will be so tangible that people are going to want to promote us and we'll look selectively at this passage and forget about the fact that Joseph's a slave and he's treated so badly. God's presence with us no more guarantees that everything we touch will turn to gold than it guarantees our boss's wife throwing herself at us. The material blessings and good fortune Joseph experiences from the hand of God in this chapter are designed to bring Joseph to a position of power where he would provide temporal salvation for his people. That is, in the midst of the coming famine, he will prevent them from starving. Did you notice who's in the prison with Joseph? Pharaoh's prisoners. You see, God's now placed Joseph in a position where he will he'll be brought before Pharaoh. In Genesis 45, Joseph says to his brothers, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. You see, Joseph, this descendant of Abraham, is a link in the unbreakable chain of God's faithfulness to his promises to Abraham, by which he will save a people for himself, not just from starvation, but from sin. And those promises are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Galatians 3 says that he's the seed of Abraham through which forgiveness and, and blessing will come. God has provided salvation from sin and eternal death through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. Friends, we're called now to repent, to turn from living life our own way and to trust in him. And God now works through us to save as we hold out this free offer of salvation to others, as we tell them this good news. In fact, the very name Jesus means Yahweh saves. In Matthew 1, we read, She, Mary, shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So notice that Mary's son is known both as Jesus, Yahweh saves, and Emmanuel, God with us. Just as the Lord was with Joseph, working out his saving plans and purposes through the ups and downs of his life, testing him, trying him sanctifying him. So too, through the Lord Jesus, our King and Lord, God is with us, saving us, testing us, sanctifying us. Friend, life in this fallen world may make you wonder sometimes if God is present. He means to assure us tonight that he is. J.I. Packer once wrote, We should not be too taken aback when unexpected and upsetting and discouraging things happen to us now. What do they mean? Why simply that God in his wisdom means to make something of us which we have not yet attained and is dealing with us accordingly. Perhaps he means to strengthen us in patience, good humour, compassion, humility or meekness by giving us some extra practice in exercising these graces under specially difficult positions. Perhaps he has new lessons in self-denial and self-distrust to teach us. Perhaps he wishes to break us of complacency or unreality or undetected forms of pride and conceit. Perhaps his purpose is simply to draw us closer to himself in conscious communion with him. For it is often the case as all the saints know that fellowship with the Father and the Son is most vivid and sweet and Christian joy is greatest when the cross is heaviest. Or perhaps God is preparing for us forms of service of which at yet, at present rather, we have no inkling. Whatever the case may be, God is with us. He cares for us. He's working things out for our good. And his presence and promises to us in the Lord Jesus should fill us with hope and spur us on to be faithful, as they did Joseph, spur us on to be faithful, to live faithfully for him that people might see our good deeds and turn and praise our Father in heaven. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that you have saved us from our sin, that you've been faithful to your promises to us. Please help us to keep trusting in him, Help us through the, the turmoils, the trials of life to keep persevering in our trust, in our faith in him. And please use these things to grow us to be more like him. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.